you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to 13. The way of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dirk. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm a pastor here at City on Hill, Brisbane. So glad that you could join us this morning. Um, hey, at City on a Hill, normally what we do is we go through a book of the Bible. Uh, the Bible's got 66 books. Uh, you'll, if you were with us last few weeks, or a few months ago, we feels like a few months ago. It's only a few weeks ago. Uh, we uh, went through Ezra and Nehemiah, and we spent 14 plus weeks uh, in that book. But uh, as Peter said, we're, we're looking at this big series called Left and Right. So we're not going to be working through 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about a whole bunch of different topics. And we're going to be looking at a huge one this morning, freedom of religion. Uh, And before I start, I just want to say, um, as hopefully you appreciate, it's an incredibly complex topic. Um, And I thought I'd just point out a couple of resources which I found helpful uh, if you'd like to go deeper, because I'm really only scratching the surface in the limited time this morning. Uh, Firstly, two books and two podcasts. Two books, two podcasts. Firstly, two books, uh, The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self by Carl Truman, a really helpful book, um, engaging in culture, how we got to where we are, this thing of expressive individualism. Um, Secondly, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age by Australian author Michael Bird. Podcasts, because, you know, who's got time for reading these days? Now, reading's really helpful, but, you know, podcasts are also helpful too. Um, Two podcasts, uh, both Australian. One is Conversations with John Anderson, former Deputy PM. Um, He he invites a a lawyer, Mark Snedden, and a a historian, Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, and they just talk about religious freedom, um, kind of in terms of legislation, in terms of history, really helpful. Uh, and secondly, Undeceptions with Dr. John Dixon, Religious Freedom. Really helpful resources. Go check them out because uh, there'll be plenty of things I missed this morning. But let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Uh, thank you for you being a God of love. Your word says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Lord, I pray that we as a church can be categorized not by our knowledge, but by our love. And thank you that you loved us first. Thank you that you loved us so much you sent us Jesus. And you revealed us who you are, what you've done, and what we are to be in response through your word. And I do pray that your word would speak to us now. And I pray that I can be clear, faithful, and helpful, and may our hearts be ready to receive, ready to be challenged, and ready to be conformed into the image of you, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Uh, Well, religious freedom uh, is a hot topic um, in Australia and uh, around the Western world right now. Carl Truman, in that book I mentioned, uh, he says that in the West, he argues that in our age of expressive individualism, uh, there's this uh, thing that sexual identity has been elevated above all else. Sexual identity has been elevated above all else. And what happens is it leads to a clash, a conflict between our, our, our expressiveness of this sexual identity and traditional religion. That's why over the past five years in Australia, we've seen a whole bunch of different Incidents, events that have happened. Um, Cooper's Beer, remember that uh, about five years ago? Cooper's Beer, they were shunned because they attempted to partner with the Bible Society and they attempted to to air a commercial modelling what they thought was a respectful debate over same-sex marriage. We've seen footballer Izzy Folau have his Rugby Australia contract ripped up over one social media post. We've seen Christian schools here in Brisbane even in the middle of controversy by attempting to define an ethos about where they stood on gender and sexuality. Even just a few weeks ago, we saw the Manly Seven, seven rugby league players controversially um, boycotting their game after they didn't want to wear the rainbow jersey. Now, I'm not going to comment on all of those issues this morning. There's lots of complexity here. Um, But yeah, those resources will serve you well that I mentioned before. I'll put them up on the Facebook group as well. If you're not part of the Facebook group, love you to uh, chat to the welcome team, chat to me. I'd love to add you in. Um, And in a few weeks' time, uh, these topics we're going to go over. A few weeks' time, uh, we're inviting Dan Patterson, who's excellent um, in thinking about culture and sexuality. He's going to be speaking on transgender, which really does tie a lot of these issues together. So that'll be profoundly helpful, I think, for us. But my point is this, that things in society in Australia, in Brisbane, they're changing rapidly. And the notion of religious freedom, it feels like it's on shaky ground. Carl Truman suggests this, that in the West, religious freedom as a social good is not simply increasingly implausible, it's also distasteful, disturbing and undesirable. It's been said often that we, in the Western world, in Australia in particular, we live in a secular age. Even uh, in that short video uh, that we watched just before, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, he says that we are a proudly secular country where people can compete for office in our secular national parliament. And that's as it should be. According to the secular party, that's a real party that exists, a political party in Australia, they say this on their website, that the secular party believes that Australia should lead the way in establishing a society free of sectarian strife. We need a global ethic based on universal moral principles. 
That, that, sounds, that sounds appealing at some, some level, to be free of all this strife, to be secular, free from bigotry, free from religious bias, getting in the way of important things like policy and education. You know, religious, the religious right in particular, they, they, they're dangerous. They need to be kept under check. You know, what about all those religious wars? What about abuse in the church? What about hypocritical leaders? What about hate speech? Enlightened secularism. Should that not be our vision for the future and for progress? Let me outline just two issues about that. Firstly, I think as a society we've confused this idea of secularism. I think we've misunderstood what it really is on about. Historian Dr. John Dixon, um, uh, host of the Undeceptions podcast, he says this, that when a healthy secular democracy shifts from freedom of religion where anyone can choose to believe or not to believe, to freedom from religion, it is no longer healthy or secular. Notice that subtle difference, freedom from religion versus freedom to have religion. You know, it gets portrayed that if we can just strip out religion from the public square, then we can find freedom. But friends, that's not true freedom. I'll explain in a second. But Second thing, uh, and this is related, is that despite as a culture uh, we are arguing, pushing for us that we are very much a secular society, we are still, on the same hand, very deeply spiritual. Europe, uh, particular Western Europe, Northern Europe, it's meant to be the secular capital of the world, and yet half of Swedes, I read this week, believe in mental telepathy. One third of Austrians have lucky charms. Here in Australia, we, we, are, we, we see prominence, we see a rise in things like horoscopes, crystals, psychics, palm readings, tarot readings. Even the self-help industry is booming. You know, a common disposition, I've heard this time and time again, is to describe ourselves as spiritual, but maybe not religious. David Zahl, he wrote a book um, arguing that relig- the religiosity of the secular world is taking over, that actually the secular world is becoming more religious. He called this book Seculosity, kind of putting those two words together, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. Love that title. Anyway, he says this, that religion is not merely that what which explains the inexplicable, but the lens in which you sort out the data of your days, rank your priorities, and focus your desires. He goes on to say that the more we retreat from this shared religion, the more contenders emerge to harness our floundering religiosity. That sort of went over your head. Um, Mickey Mouse, who, who, who's seen Mickey Mouse before? Yeah, a few of you. Remember Fantasia? Um, remember the Sorcerer's Apprentice? Who, who remembers that? Mickey Mouse? Yeah, a few of us. Yeah, it's a classic, classic bit of film. I think it's from 1940, but it's amazing. Go watch it on YouTube. But um, what happens is Mickey Mouse, right, he's, uh, he, he falls asleep. He was cleaning up. There's this mop, and he falls asleep, and suddenly the mop takes over his house, and it starts flooding. And so what he does, he gets an axe, and he tries to chop the head off the mop. He tries to smash it, but it breaks into a million pieces. And each of these pieces just form into a new mop, and there's this kind of contest between Mickey Mouse and the mop. What's the point of that story? Well, um, the harder that we fight against religion, David Zahl argues, that the more options are created to fill that vacuum. So it's not as though we kind of can just cut the head out of religion and then it just goes away. We become neutral and secular. And actually, when we kind of try to cut it out, other things just pop up. And in this marketplace of 2022, you can put your religion in whatever you want. 
everything, anything can take that void that's deep in our heart. If you take notes this morning, here's my first point. We are all worshippers. We are all worshippers. When we're thinking about the freedom of religion, it's not an us versus them mentality. It's a false dichotomy to think of the religious versus the secular. There's no such thing as a neutral playing field um, and that, that can be untainted because we all have this desire to worship. We're all affected by this. We're all worshippers. Even you know, most recently, last year, there was a survey, a census, and 38.9% of Australia, um, the highest ever recorded, say they subscribe to no religion. But even they are worshippers. Uh, author David Foster Wallace, not a Christian or particularly religious in the classic sense, he says this, that there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Now, what do we mean by worship? It's easy to have a definition, I think even for us Christians, especially for something that's too narrow. And if I were to say, hey, did I miss the worship this morning? What are we talking about? Music, that's right. Who's the worship leader? There's the person who leads the songs. You know, we see on maps, on town planning, a place of will. This building might be a place of worship. Uh, the Palace Barrack Cinema doesn't kind of fit that category culturally, um, but that's a, a far too narrow version of what worship is. And that's actually not how the Bible views worship. Worship literally means ascribing more worth to something, elevating something up on high. Everybody worships. The question is not do we, but what do we worship? Well, that's our choice. That's, that's what our heart longs for. Our hearts, they long to give ultimate value and significance to things. This is what gives us meaning. This is how God has made us. John Calvin, uh, the famous reformer 500 years ago, he said this, that the human heart is a factory for idols. The human heart is a factory for idols. Our hearts, they want to grab hold of something bigger than us and give it glory and praise and honor. We all get this. Even Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous, famous atheists in the last 50 years, he said this, that it's innate for us to be overawed by certain moments, say an evening on a mountaintop or a sunset on the boundaries of an ocean, or in my case, looking through the Hubble telescope at all those extraordinary pictures. We have a sense of awe and wonder at something beyond ourselves. And so we should, because our lives are very transient and insignificant. Fascinating, an atheist, just kind of nailing that, that, that idea that we, we want to be part of something bigger. We love the celebrity. We love the influencer. We love chasing that experience of travel, that new view, that Instagrammable moment, that new cafe. We love it when our sporting team wins. I used to play footy, and uh, I played union, played AFL. And when we won a game, we would huddle together and we'd sing a victory song, which is very much a worship song. But it's not necessarily the thing itself that, that what we worship, it, it's how it makes us feel. We want to chase after that pleasurable experience, that hit of dopamine when we discover that our, the new series is finally up on Netflix. The thrill of a new relationship, the security we feel when the tax return comes back in. Let's take money, for example. I don't think many of us are you know, like Scrooge McDuck and just worship money and just kind of love laying down in a pile of coins, um, if we don't even have coins anymore. But it, it's, the, it's the view that worship, that, sorry, it's the view that we would worship 
Um, not money, but the feeling that it gives us, the power that it gives us, the control, uh, the ability it gives us to take back control of our lives, the way money allows us to give in to our comforts or buying things for the approval of others. Uh, power, control, comfort, approval, these are what uh, Tim Keller uh, uh, describes as our root idols, things we really worship because of the satisfaction that they bring us. If you have a Bible, we are going to get to the Bible. Open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, he's, uh, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. And, uh, and he gives a very scathing picture of humanity. Romans 1, come with me to verse 20. For his, that's God's, invisible attributes namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul's saying that God has revealed Himself to the world, generally, through the world. That's why even atheists like Christopher Hitchens can have these transcendent experiences on the top of mountains or looking up to the stars. I keep reading verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Bible says that throughout history, we've always been worshippers. But what's happening here is that uh, humanity is exchanging the glory that God deserves for other things been exchanged and placed elsewhere, on images, on things that are way less valuable that don't deserve our worship. We see it time and time again, and as Carl Truman says, it's focused now in our culture on worshipping ourself. Keep reading verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Desire. It's a good thing, a God-given thing, but the problem with desire is when it becomes a lust of the heart. Uh, the word um, in the Bible, lust there, it's this Greek word, epithemia, which literally means like over-desire, an over-the-top, uh, almost uncontrollable desire. It occurs 38 times in the New Testament. It's when we desire something so much, we want to elevate it and worship it or the feeling it gives from us. You know, sometimes it's a thing that we must have at all costs because of this innate desire for satisfaction. And so Paul says God hands people over to these desires. Firstly, we're all worshippers. There's no neutral observers here on this topic of freedom of religion. Here's the second point. God has given us freedom to worship. God has given us freedom to worship. See, God doesn't ban people from worshipping other things. As we've seen, He allows people to worship whatever they please. Keep reading. Keep Romans 1 open. God gave them up to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God says that He is the only one truly worthy of worship. He is the one who made everything. He made you. This is And God made us... But way back in, we looked at this last week, way back in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible, we see God as the creator. And how did he make us? Well, he made us with freedom. 
Freedom to rule over the world he made. Freedom to name animals in the garden. Freedom to eat fruit and nuts and eat from the tree of life, live forever. God's plan was for humans to flourish, to be fulfilled in perfect relationship with God, their creator, and each other, and indeed the world. But God said, don't eat from this particular tree over there. It won't end well for you. In fact, you'll die. In that freedom, Adam and Eve, they they made a decision about worship. They expressed their religious freedom to deny listening to God, the Creator. They instead listened to Satan and chose to become a follower of Him. They chose to seek a worldly spiritual experience to satisfy their hearts rather than obey the religious command that God had given them, rather than follow the religious order of worship that God had established. As Romans said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. See, God wanted Adam and Eve, and indeed He wants us as humanity to be in a relationship with Him. And yet He doesn't force us. He gives us autonomy. In Genesis 1, 27 to 28, the Bible says that God has made us in His image. We've been given inherent worth, dignity, value. English author Oz Guinness, he helpfully, I think, defines religious freedom for us and gets to the heart of it. He says this, a bit of a longer quote. He says, The right of religious liberty, religious freedom, is a fundamental consequence of human nature itself and of our capacity as thinking, choosing, conscience-directed beings. This foundation in human dignity is what makes religious freedom, so religious liberty, a natural, basic, and indispensable right, independent of the decisions of any group or government. As a human right, rather than a favour, religious liberty is a right to be guaranteed by the government, but it is not the government's right to grant. Religious liberty is for atheists and secularists too, and for all human beings who assume and value meaning in their lives. The heart of this, it comes back to who God has made us. He's made us all unique. Regardless of what we believe, we have dignity and worth and value. Every single person, regardless of what religion or lack of religion they subscribe to, they are precious, valuable, made in the image of God. Therefore, we all have and should have freedom to express worship. Now, perhaps on one level, that might not be surprising to you. We take this for granted. Of course, I have the right to believe because they're my beliefs. You know, what I do in the, in the privacy of my own home or on a Sunday morning, that's my time. But that's, a, that's not a very a historic way of how people have thought about religion as this individualistic thing. Throughout history, religion has been very much a public thing. To be part of a city or part of a culture was to adopt the religious activity of the day, of the, of the culture. You'd be able to very obviously tell what someone believed, what religion they were part of, just by looking at them, by what they wore, what foods they ate, how they lived their life. Nowadays, it's seen as a very private thing, something you sort of do behind closed doors. Looking at Jesus, let's look at what Jesus has to say. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, it's one of religious freedom. Come with me to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through Him. 
we've uh, just read a passage, thanks Dirk, about love. Um, and, you know, that's not a, yeah, that's kind of not talking about how to do a wedding. That, that's not primarily talking about marriage. It's talking about who God is. God is a God of love. He's patient with us, kind to us, and forgiving of us. And here in John 3, 16, 17, uh, we see this greatest expression of love. For, you, you could literally say, for God so loved the world that in this way, this is the way he demonstrated his love. He gave us Jesus. Out of love, he sends Jesus and calls his people to believe, to choose him freely. Earlier in, in John chapter 3, we see Jesus have an encounter with a religious leader, a guy called Nicodemus. And Jesus says that to, to go to heaven, you need to be born again. That's where we get the word born again Christian from. It's not about the religious tradition that you grew up in. It's not about being born into the right family. It's about believing in Jesus. Also notice verse 17, God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, to bring about judgment onto the world, to point out all the mistakes and errors and sins that everyone has. No, he came to save. He doesn't come to impose a religious system on top of others. Rather, he comes to bring about religious freedom. Turn with me to John chapter 4, and we, we see this incredible story of religious freedom. We see Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to drink water, to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus sees this woman in the middle of the day, we read, who's probably walked for miles just to get some water from a well. She's gone in the hottest part of the day. This is Middle East, near the equator. It's hot in, in the middle of the day. And if you were going to walk a long time to get water, typically you do it you know, dawn or dusk when it was cooler. But she comes in the middle of the day because we read she's got a shameful past. We see um, there's three barriers that Jesus crosses to engage her with a message of worship and freedom. Uh, we see, firstly, a moral boundary that we read she's, got, she's had five husbands, and the man she's with is not her husband. That would be strange enough today for us uh, in Brisbane 2022, for someone to have five husbands be with someone that's not their husband. That'd be a little bit unusual, a little bit. Um, but back then, in first century Middle Eastern culture, that was a complete scandal. You'd be ostracized, kicked out of the community, maybe even stoned to death. There's a moral barrier. Secondly, she's a foreigner. little inclusion there that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. The Jews and Samaritans, they were enemies of each other and had centuries of political tension between each other. There's a cultural, religious barrier. Thirdly, she's also a woman. Now, big deal, we say. You know, we're all about gender equality, women's rights, etc. Stephen Coo is going to preach about that in a couple of weeks' time, and he's going to make everything clear for us. Look forward to that. But, you know, back then, it was very different to today. Uh, in the Middle East, and even Middle East today, it looks very different to us right now. Men and women who weren't married just wouldn't typically strike up conversations. There's a, a gender barrier. I, I went, a couple of years ago, I went, uh, a Muslim mate invited me to a dinner, and all the men just eating one room, all the ladies eating another room. That's just how they live. There's this gender barrier back there in first century Middle Eastern culture. 
So these three things, religious, moral, and, and gender barriers, Jesus crosses over them. He asks her for a drink, and then we read he shares good news to her. He says that he is actually the Messiah. He is God's chosen promised king that brought a message of forgiveness and hope to the world. The good news for her is that she didn't have to now go to a particular place, a mountain or a temple to worship God, but she could worship God freely in spirit and in truth from her heart. Jesus cuts across these boundaries and shows this woman her true religious freedom. She's also the first recorded evangelist in John's gospel, a foreign woman living in sin, and yet Many of her people, many Samaritans, we read, believed because of her testimony. The, the Samaritans, they, they freely chose to believe in Jesus. Not because she coerced them to, not because she went around to a village with a sword. No, she was literally the bottom rung of society. Like if anyone's, if, 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 if anyone's got a credible story, it's definitely not her. And yet many Samaritans believed because of her testimony. It's an incredible picture of true religious freedom, this winsome, public, gentle interaction between two people who have different worldviews who shouldn't be hanging out with one another, and yet one freely decides to change her beliefs and then freely shares those beliefs. Christianity has been built upon this idea of religious freedom. Unlike most other religions, Christianity is not set up as part of a government system. In fact, it was established under the persecution of both the Roman Empire and the Jews. And throughout the world today, the church is often booming the most where persecution is the strongest. Yes, of course, there have been times where the government has attached itself to Christianity and propagated awful things. The Crusades are a tragic answer to this. Helpful book, um, Heroes and Books, sorry, Bullies and Saints by John Dixon, really helpful book talking about how Christianity is better and worse than we can ever imagine. As an aside, Christians have been awful over the, over the centuries. Absolutely. But this isn't Jesus' message. And his message was not to be promoted by the sword, but through the word, encapsulated by, as we read, love. Tertullian, who was a North African Christian in the third century, uh, writing under the oppression of the Roman Empire back in 212 AD, he, he writes perhaps the earliest uh, coherent argument for religious freedom that we have. He says this, that it is a fundamental right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion, to which free will and not force should lead us. The sacrificial victims even being required of a willing mind. Freedom of religion has historically been a thoroughly Christian idea. A uh, hundred years later, after Tertullian, the Roman Empire, Constantine, he became a Christian. He had a, a conversion, and uh, that drastically has affected uh, the, the, even our history today. And one historian, Peter, uh, Peter Lightheart, he says surprisingly that unlike you know, other emperors, other kings of the day, he didn't punish after becoming a Christian, uh, he didn't punish pagans for being pagans or Jews for being Jewish. He didn't adopt a policy of forced conversion. Unlike other ancient, other ancient rulers, there was an incredible amount of religious liberty. However, 
just a couple of generations later. Christianity was then imposed upon the empire. And for about a thousand years, we had this era which we call Christendom, uh, where religious freedom was not really there. It was only until the, the Reformation that we really saw that emerge again. For us today, fast forward to 2022, religious freedom, it's an incredible privilege. And I think often we take it for granted. As Christians, uh, we should be shaped by Jesus and, and actually fight for others' religious freedom, even more than ourselves. Let's say that there was a, a Buddhist or a Hindu group that wanted to meet after us this morning. You might not agree with them on, on things, but it's important that uh, we advocate the rights that they have together. There have been Muslim women wearing hijabs who have been denied the rights to hotels and other venues in Australia. You know, we want to advocate freedom of expression, including how people are dressed. If we want Christian schools to be genuinely able to teach, then who are we to teach from Christian values uh, and, and teach the Bible even, then who are we to argue against another faith wanting to build a religious school in our suburb? Maybe in the not-too-distant future, Christian schools will be clamped down upon, legislation tightened about how free that they are to hold their Christian convictions. Maybe we might have to give up that privilege. There might be a, a, a time where Christian schools get watered down, I mean, they are already on some, on some level, to Christian values, or a school might be reduced to having to operate within a Judeo-Christian ethic. Yes, there is a place for advocacy, to argue, to reason, uh, to petition perhaps even, for us and others to be able to hold on to our freedoms. But freedom of religion isn't freedom to be a jerk. We have to let some of our, we might have to let some of our freedoms go. And we need to look to Christ and walk in the way of love. You know, it's possible um, for us even as a church to have uh, restrictions imposed on how we meet in venues, uh, particularly ones that we don't own. A church that, that I know, uh, it, it meets in a school uh, and uh, as part of their venue hire, there's a clause that says they are unable to talk about marriage while they have their Sunday gatherings. Unable to talk about marriage at all during their church services. That could become us one day in this venue. Some of us need to feel this. Uh, perhaps we're, we're comfortable in our Christianity and we think that, um, that, that we're able just to keep on doing what we're doing and um, that people will just generally agree with us. Some of us thinking that, you know, culture is perhaps more on board uh, and we, we take for granted our rights, our privileges, than what is actually happening. Maybe you or I could in our lifetimes end up in jail for believing and expressing what this says. Like that, that's a real possibility. In fact, that's happening all around the world. And historically, Christians have been thrown in jail and even killed for, uh, for expressing uh, what the Bible says. But some of us, perhaps on the other side, we, we overplay the persecution card. In the scheme of things, we, we really do have it pretty good in Australia, in Brisbane right now. I mean, we're meeting at a cinema. And we do a thing called prayer in the square where we advertise on the internet, hey, come and pray in the middle of the CBD. Like, that, like historically, like to be able to do that, that's crazy. And right around the world, our brothers and sisters do not have anywhere near that sort of freedom. In the context of, of changing landscape or religious freedom, I just want to just apply a couple of things that I think are important. Firstly, for families. Families, we need to be taking more responsibility for discipling our children. 
in a world that's propagating a different message, uh, we cannot rely on education, even Christian education, to do this. Friends, we need to be making disciples in our household. But secondly, and this is for everyone, uh, we need to be discipling each other. They say it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a church to to raise a disciple. We need each other. We need to be involved in people's lives more than just on a Sunday service. I love what Peter said this morning. Um, church camp, community, we need to keep going in that, in that way. We need a thick, rich community where Jesus is brought into every aspect of our lives. Especially, you know, this isn't a permanent venue. We can't just rely on Sunday mornings. And, and uh, back, back in, um, you know, earlier I quoted the the secular party, they've got a laugh. There you go, that's what they said. But they said that we need a global ethic based on universal moral principles. That, that's true. We do need that. But how do you commit to a agreed principle? How do, you agree, how do you agree on a global ethic? How do you get universal moral principles? Well, you need someone who's objectively able to look at the whole. You need a universal moral lawgiver. One who doesn't just drive within the culture, but someone who's able to speak from outside with truth and love. Who is that? Who is qualified to give a universal moral law and speak into our society? That's Jesus. Only Jesus is able to truly call a spade a spade, to truly say what is right, what is wrong. Through Jesus, the whole world was made. He knows everything. So, We've seen that we are all worshippers. We've seen that we've been given freedom to worship. And we're going to apply this specifically in Jesus. True freedom is found worshipping Jesus. Now, the starting point that we want all people to have freedom and autonomy to be able to express their own beliefs. That's a starting point. That's important. But that's, freedom of religion isn't the end goal. It's just the start. See, true freedom is more than just freedom from constraints. It's more than just freedom from barriers. Imagine, right, I had a goldfish. I walked into church with a goldfish bowl, and there's a goldfish in there. If I took the goldfish and placed it on a chair or on a stair or on a bear, if I placed it somewhere on your head, if I placed it somewhere, um, <laughs> um, thanks for that joke, Mike. If I placed it somewhere then, um, and took it out of the bowl, would that fish be free? Of course not. You can say, oh, fish, you can go do whatever you want, make whatever you want of your life. You know, you're on, you can run away. No, of course not, because what's the goal of a fish? Well, it's to swim. It's to be in water. That's its purpose. That's what it was made for. In the same way, the goal for us, it isn't just to remove all barriers and all constraints. That's not what true freedom is. It's to live as we were intended to, to be able to have the freedom to flourish, to live as how God made us. Religion of the world, the Bible says, is slavery. And actually, others have observed this as well. David Foster Wallace, again, he's not a Christian. He says this, that if you worship money and things, if, if they are where you t- tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. The Bible calls this as being a slave to sin, having a master over you. You might feel that you have the autonomy to be able to control the situation 
on your terms. You know, you can indulge in sin therapeutically. I mean, let's face it, it does feel good to take that substance, to look at porn, to say something hurtful about someone, to withhold part of the truth, to gossip. That might be your religion. That's the way you deal with things. Feels good in the moment, perhaps. Well, you can use your freedom to deal with your sin through religious terms. You've done something wrong, so you offset it by doing something good. Remember when I was in grade seven, I did the 40-hour famine through World Vision, and I kind of collected some money and put it in my top drawer. And this was not my plan at all, but I ended up not handing it in. I ended up taking the money. I stole from World Vision. How terrible is that? And I felt so guilty. So what did I do? Well, I tried to, to kind of right my wrongs by doing good work. So I sponsored a child. I gave to World Vision. I tried to do good and volunteer in the community. I tried to do good works to absolve myself of this guilt. But it doesn't work. There's a fundamental problem. I can never unwrite that wrong. But someone can. That's Jesus. Turn with me to John again, chapter 8. There's true freedom found in Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Those who are truly Jesus' disciples, they will have freedom. Those who know the truth. What is truth? Great question. How does Jesus achieve freedom for us? Well, as I invite the band up and wrap up, Jesus will later say that I am the truth. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the only way to God. In a world of half-truths, misinformation, fake news, and subtle spin, Jesus, He is the truth we can bank upon. He is not one possible subjective truth. He's not my truth in a world of competing truths. No, He is the truth. He is the one way we can experience the world. He's not one way we can experience the world to find hope. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's incapable of lying. He's the solution to the fundamental problem of brokenness, of rebellion, and of false religion. In a world that says you need to try harder, you need to seek more pleasure, you need to discover yourself or escape to find happiness, Jesus says, no, you just need to come to me. He became broken so that you might become whole. He suffered unjustly so that justice could be delivered. He was rejected by men so that you could be accepted. He died so that you could have life. He was poor so that you might become rich. He became a slave so that we might become free. Knowing Jesus, it's far more than a slogan. It's more than our vision. It's our prayer. Let's sit on a hill. There is freedom in knowing Jesus. Do you know Him? If you do know Him, let's keep making Him known. Church, we want religious freedom. We want a peaceful environment where a free market place of ideas can flourish, but These are just temporary solutions. This is the starting point. The lasting solution comes from outside of our broken system of humanity. Our solution is found in Jesus. Let's stand and I'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father,
we do thank you for Jesus and thank you that he is the truth, he is the way, he is the life, and he is the source of true and lasting freedom. Lord, I do pray again that we can be a city on a hill, a people that is characterized by love that comes from you. Help us to live graciously. Help us to be the salt and light of the world, pointing people in love and deed to you, the creator who created all things. And Lord, I pray all of this through Jesus' precious and beautiful name. All of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.